morning. This morning's scripture is uh, from 1 Kings 21, and we're going to read 1 through 19, 23 through 24, and then 27 to 29. Um, In your pew Bible, it's pages 354 and 355. Now, there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, Since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use it as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you this inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. What's the matter, his wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something, and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed him with his seal, and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded, Call the citizens together for a time of fasting, and give Naboth a place of honor and then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. Take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and the other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth in a prominent place before the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat down across from him. And they accused Naboth before all the people, saying, He cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, You know the vineyard that Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now. He's dead. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. But the Lord said to Elijah, Go down and meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, the dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they licked the blood of Naboth. And now to verse 23 and 24. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. And then 27 through 29. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. 
Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. The word of the Lord. Whenever somebody tells me that the Bible is boring, this is the first story I send them to. Better than any daytime TV you would ever find, the story of Jezebel, Ahab, and Elijah reads like a forerunner to Game of Thrones, full of sex and violence, intrigue, deception, injustice, and retribution. And Jezebel herself, was there ever a woman who held such a position in our minds of evil? The name evokes in our heads and hearts anger and disgust. It is a name that has come to be an insult all on its own. We might tell people, you Jezebel, or you have a Jezebel spirit. There were plenty of evil people in the Bible. Kings, princes, occasionally the very people of God. What is it about this one woman that has pushed her to the top of the list? What is the truth behind the character we know of this woman? Does it even matter? Current perceptions of Jezebel would having you believe what? That she was bossy, controlling, vain, perhaps promiscuous. Looking at the depictions of her throughout centuries in art, and you will see a heavily made-up, seductive-looking woman standing defiantly above her weak husband. But what do we lose when we accept this one facet as complete understanding of a complex woman and a complex story? What is lost when over half our population rejects the story as their own, given her gender? Is this a cautionary tale about simple gender roles and the need for dominant husbands and submissive wives? Or might there be more there? More that God is trying to teach us in this tale. What do we truly know about this woman Jezebel and her husband Ahab? We know she was the daughter of a king. She was a princess of Phoenicia. That means most likely that she was married young and without any choice or say in the matter. She was raised as a political expediency that would have been trained and raised in privilege away from most other people. Likewise, Ahab was the son of a king, the son of King Omri, who was a great warrior king for Israel. He was raised to take over the land. He was taught to see himself as chosen by God above the rest. Both Jezebel and Ahab were raised to think that they were special in this world. That they deserved more, that they had a right to more than everyone else because of who they were. And it plays out here in Ahab's request for Naboth's vineyard. Naboth has something that Ahab wants. He feels he deserves. I mean, after all, he is the king, and he wants a garden closer to his home. 
He's offering to give him another vineyard or money. In his mind, Naboth should gladly give it up. But Naboth doesn't see it this way. He knows that this land was given to him by God. He remembers the promise that was made to his ancestors and that his ancestors made to the living God that gives him a responsibility for that particular piece of land. And what is Ahab, the great king's response to this no? He goes home and he pouts. Like a toddler told no, he goes into his room, he lays with his face against the wall, and he refuses dinner. And his wife Jezebel comes into the room, and she looks at him on a bed and says, are you not king? We can infer the rest. Do you not deserve that land? Are you not entitled to that land? That man is nothing. You are the king. How dare he defy you? You are special. We are special compared to him. I'll get it for you, she says. One of the things that we tend to overlook when it comes to Jezebel is the fact that she's highly educated. This was a rarity in her world, a world in which very few women were ever taught to read or write. Jezebel was able to do both. And she wasn't just smart, she was borderline brilliant. She knew Jewish law and the Torah to a T. She had learned her adopted culture. She knew to call for a fast. She knew how banquets worked, how to use the law of God to accomplish her goals far better than her husband, the king of Israel, did. Where Ahab had apparently forgotten the laws of Yahweh, the importance and the promise of ancestral land, the prohibition on its sale, Jezebel knew she could work around the law if Naboth was dead. A tactician of the first order who reminds us in many ways of King David. Because she and King David share a story, a story about killing someone in order to gain a possession that was not and should not have been theirs to begin with. And yet, one is considered most favored of God. One is considered a hero of our Bibles. We teach our children to emulate him. The other consigned to the deepest parts of history as one of the most evil human beings who have walked the planet. So why is their story so different? What is the missing piece? It has to do with how each saw God and saw themselves. What would you do if I told you that every preconceived notion you had about Jezebel was most likely wrong? The things that we have decided are the worst about her, the things that we've decided that make her evil, that she was a temptress, a loose woman, that she was vain, they don't exist in the text at all. There's not a word found in the Bible about her physical appearance. It's surprisingly silent. Who is named as beautiful, as ravishing, as alluring in Scripture? Sarah, Rebecca, Abigail, Abishag, Rachel, Tamar, Esther, Rahab, Eve, Job's daughters. The list goes on and on. But hers isn't there. 
when we know so much about her, why is it that we have bought in to the one description that least likely fits her? And my guess is because if we look much closer, we have to admit that we are far more like Jezebel than we want. See, if her sins are cast into the narrow field of sex and gender, then as Christians, we don't have to pay much attention. It's a cautionary tale for everybody else, but it's not for us. The difference between David and Jezebel at the very end of the day is going to be that one believed that she was special until her very last breath, where the other one realized how unspecial he was and how extraordinary God was in his stead. Now, I bet when I mentioned the word entitled earlier that most of us in this room had a thought of someone else who really should be here for today's sermon. Maybe it's our brother or sister, maybe it's our spouse, maybe it's our kids, maybe it's our parents, but certainly not us. We work hard, we have earned our rights. It's never us who's entitled. It's always somebody else. In a famous introduction to A Prairie Home Companion, a show that used to be on NPR, Garrison Killier used to say, Welcome to Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. And it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek. After all, if everyone is above average, no one is. But the truth is our own thinking is not as far off from this as we would like. We tell each other all the time how special we are. We tell our children they're special. We tell our parents they're special. Our spouses they're special. Our friends are special. We tell ourselves we're special. And as Christians, we seem especially to like telling each other that we're special. But it is this kind of thinking that has led to some of the worst atrocities that this world has ever seen. Slavery was acceptable because people told themselves that they were special and others weren't. The Holocaust happened because there was a group of people who believed that they were more special than everybody else. Genocide, apartheid, rape, murder, theft, all of these come back to the fact that somewhere inside of a person, someone believes that they are special that the rules don't quite apply to them like they apply to everybody else, that their wants and needs are more important than everybody else. And now I know most of you are not out there committing apartheid and are not out there committing murder, and for that I'm grateful. But that doesn't exempt us. Because those kind of horrors, those kind of systematic group things, they don't start that big. They instead start in a million different small ways that cascade and begin to add up until we begin to believe every time that we're just a little bit better. For example, last week my husband and I went to a comedy show. 
And we were really excited. Now, the show started at 7 o'clock. It was up at the Luther Burbank Center. And we got there early. We made sure we were in our seats. And it hit 7 o'clock. And guess what happened? Nothing. Because at 7 o'clock, in a stadium that seats probably 1,000 people, there were still at least 90, 100 people that were making their way slowly in 7, 7.05, 7.10, 7.15, people still coming to their seats. They were busy. They were running behind. The start time didn't really matter. And as we walked into this room, there were big signs that said, no cell phones, no video, no photography, no heckling. And lo and behold, as the show goes on and the lights come down, what do we see in front of us? But a man pull his cell phone out of his pocket, turn it on, and begin to record. And then from a few rows behind us, we hear a woman who apparently thought we had all come there to hear her. And so she continued to yell things out and heckle and think she was funny. When I have conversations with people in the church about the potential for change, about the potential for making adjustments, one of the most common responses I get is, well, I've been here longer. I should have more of a say. Or I give more, so of course I should have more of a say. When I have conversations with people about things like climate change, one of the most common responses I get is, well, if it is real, then it's not my problem because I won't be here when it happens. In a million different ways every day, we live into the idea that we are special and others are not. And it's funny because the definition for special is this. It's to be distinguished by some unusual quality, especially being in some way superior. It is to be readily distinguishable by, from others if in the same category. Being other than usual or designed for a particular purpose or creation. As human beings, there's only one of these descriptions we can claim. And that is we, in fact, were designed for a particular purpose or occasion. But outside of that, we have to admit that right now in the world, there are 7.5 billion people. That means if you are one in a million, there are 7,000 other people exactly like you. Each of us needs food and water to survive. Each of us longs to have our family safe, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. To think that we're distinguished by some unusual quality in this world is perhaps the height of self-delusion. And the problem is that when we fail to see this common thread, when we fail to understand how like everyone else we are, when we think that we're special, it becomes easy to justify our actions just like Jezebel and Ahab justified theirs. It's easy to begin to think that our safety is more important than another's, that our economic stability matters more than another's, that our understanding of Jesus matters more than another's. And because we believe these things, we can excuse the way we go about ensuring 
that we retain this particular worldview, no matter who we might hurt or trample. We might even use Jesus and our faith as an excuse for why we should have precedence over another group of people. Like Jezebel with Namath, we are often more committed to getting the outcome we desire than being faithful in the process of attaining it. And we tell ourselves that we're doing it for God. We take our knowledge of Jesus, we take our knowledge of the word, and we use our people skills to manipulate the world to fit our view that we are special. Maybe it's just me, but if I'm honest, I know in my life that I have used my knowledge and relationship with God and the Bible to accomplish desires that were far more about me and my own wants and comforts than they ever were about God. Somehow I managed to convince myself on a regular basis that this is what God would want me to have or what God would want the Christian community to have because we're special but we are not special. We are ordinary, normal, basic human beings. The only truly special person to have ever walked on the face of this earth was named Jesus. From the beginning with Adam and Eve, the greatest of human sin has been our desire to be like God, our desire to reject being normal humans and to become somehow intrinsically special apart from God. Yet throughout scripture, we find that God does not use people who think they're special, only people who think he is. People like Moses, Rahab, Mary, Zacchaeus, the blind, the poor, the lame, the outsider, and the broken. Those are the people that God uses. The people that God cannot use are the people like the Pharisees who are so convinced that they are better than the rest, that they are special, that they're of no use. And this is where we again find David. When David killed Uriah Bathsheba's husband, when Ahab was confronted by Elijah, we find that both David and Ahab repent whether it's Elijah or Nathan calling their attention to them, they tear their clothes and they mourn. And we find that God then is not in the habit of throwing out his children when they make mistakes. Instead, he restores them. When we repent of the desire to be special, God forgives us and again uses us for his glory. But Jezebel can't let go. She's so determined that she is special that it will cause her own death. Most of us know the story of King Midas, found in Greek mythology, a man who helped a god and was given a wish. And he wished that whatever he could touch would turn to gold. He wanted to be special, and it was given to him. And at first, it was great. No one else had this power. He could amaze the court by touching things, until he tried to eat. And he found that everything he tried to bring to his mouth turned to gold. And then he went to hug his daughter, and she turns to gold. 
and the specialness that he thought was such a gift turns out to be a curse. Because the gift of knowing that we're not special is that it reminds us that we are part of a bigger story and family. Modern thought would tell us that we are the heroes of our own story, the protagonist of our own adventure, but those who follow Jesus know that's not true. Jesus is the hero of our story. He is the protagonist. As Christians, we are called to embrace and acknowledge our sheer ordinariness, that we are the same as every person and we stand equally in front of the cross. And we love our neighbor because we know that we are no better than them and no different than them, no matter how tempting it might be to think otherwise. We are not better than teen mom. We're not better than the drug dealer on the corner. We're not better than the alcoholic that is on the side of the street. We're not better than the refugee. We're not better than the politician. We are all human with the same sin, the same need, and the same limitations. And not only this, but it reminds us that we are part of that bigger story. We are not alone, that no matter how bad things get, there are others who have been there before, who are there with us. Sometimes in the midst of loss and pain, it is tempting to feel special, to feel like we are the only ones who have ever gone through something this hard and devastating. The truth is, while every experience is unique, it's not set apart. For every person suffering loss, infertility, illness, and death, there are thousands, if not millions, of other people walking through the same pain and the same darkness at the same time. We're not special, and that's a gift. Ahab and Jezebel forgot this. They forgot that God's people are only special in the fact that they were created for a purpose. That purpose to be revealing God's glory, not to revel in their own. Every Sunday we keep symbols up front. We keep a table and bread and wine and a cross. And we are reminded that they are not special some wood and bread and wine, but they are made extraordinary by the grace that is given to them. As people of God, we are called to remember that we are not special. At the foot of the cross, we are the same as everyone else. And it's a gift because we receive the same grace, the same forgiveness, and the same love as everyone else. Amen.